Hey, welcome to another episode of Film Streak. Now, with these episodes, what I'm doing is I'm going to recap the last week or so of films that I've seen. I'm watching a new movie every day. That means something I've never seen before, something maybe I've heard about and had it on a list and just never got around to it. Maybe it's just something totally random that just happens to pop up on a recommendation page or some other algorithm magic. But either way, it's going to be something new, something I've never seen before. And I've seen a lot of movies and you can see if you're watching, <laughs> that's a lot of movies behind me. So let's take a shot at uh, what we got this week. Now, um, the first episode was a little bit rough. I just kind of started recording, didn't really know what I was going to say, but this time I've got some notes. I took some notes, kind of tried to make this a little bit more of an organized thing. So let's get into it. Um, number one. No, I take it back. Not number one. Number nine, actually, because I did one through eight. So we're starting with number nine. Number nine is uh, a film called Vivarium. And it stars Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, it stars Imogene Poots. And it's uh, it's kind of an odd film. Um it's it's really based on a premise that is uh, kind of out of the twilight zone or the outer limits or something like that. And uh, it's about a couple who's young and they're looking into buying a home and they're not really sure maybe what they're getting into, but they feel like this is, I guess, part of what they need to do in life. And they go to a uh, an agent, like a real estate agent. They take them to a suburb, like a, just a kind of a development, a, a new neighborhood. And right away, it looks pretty creepy, looks pretty suspect. Um, the homes are all identical. Uh, there's nobody there. It, so basically, uh, you know, this couple, um, they get stuck in this neighborhood. They can't get out. They try to find their way out of the neighborhood. They keep going in circles. They end up just coming back to the same house, and they start to actually just become resigned to living their life there, which is a little bit unusual. But I, you know, if you back up and look at it from a, more of a metaphorical aspect, I get it. It's about, you know, the fear of, uh, you know, falling into that lifestyle, maybe of, of conformity and, and the suburban uh, malaise that can, that can kind of trap you. Um, you can kind of become a part of that life and maybe you didn't even know what was happening or maybe you did and you fought it and resisted as much as you could, but it still happens. And, you know, for a lot of people, that's just life. Uh, for some people, that's not something they're they're ready for. That's not something they ever want to be a part of. So it's uh, it's interesting to see this take on it, just kind of a very literal take of the couple getting stuck in a life they didn't want. And that includes having a home, uh, having children, having you know all those types of responsibilities that uh, ultimately start to haunt them. And it's uh, it's pretty interesting because it is it is a little bit of a uh, you know it's it's just a gimmick really to kind of get you into the story to kind of set up everything that happens. But once it starts going, it, it really gets creepy and it really gets uh, disturbing. And so I would say. If that's something, you know, if, if that's a, a part of life that you're at and this makes uh, this makes um, this makes sense to you, then, uh, yeah, there's a lot to see there, um, including, you know, the 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 mother, the young put it this way, the young woman 
struggling with her urge to be a mother or to, you know, what does it mean to be a mother? And the young man kind of maybe not really finding any peace with this life or this lifestyle and just constantly kind of looking for a way out. And ultimately it being the thing that just takes him, you know? Um, and so look, it's, it's an interesting film. Um, I like the cast in it. I like some of the, the style of it, the, the visual approach to it. Um, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit, uh, stretched out though. You can feel like this might've been like a really powerful, really interesting short film. And maybe it was at some point, but, uh, to kind of draw it out into a feature, I, I feel like there are stretches and there are moments of it that, uh, uh, maybe we didn't really need, or we didn't need as much of, but overall I'd give it a, you know, rec I'd recommend it if you're into, uh, these kinds of super, not even supernatural, but just kind of odd, disturbing thriller type films that are uh, basically examining what it means to, you know, kind of grow up and build a life. Um, so maybe give that one a shot. And I think that was on, uh, where did I see that on? Let me see. I have notes. I have notes. Check it out right here. Watch this. Um, I do have uh, a note that it was on Amazon Prime. So you can see it there. And, you know, you might be able to see it other places too. But that's where I saw it. And, um, yeah, I think it's worth looking at if you're at least interested in the subject matter and the approach. Um, so, all right, that's number nine. Number nine, we got it down. Now let's move to, um, let's move to the next one, which um, I'd been wanting to see this one for a while. And I wasn't really sure what to expect. I only knew two things about it. I knew the director and I knew the lead actor in it. And for me, those things are just off kilter enough that made me want to see it. Now, the only problem is I just hadn't gotten around to seeing it, but I finally did. And that is Possessor, directed by Brandon Cronenberg, son of David Cronenberg, which, uh, you know, if you know... Cronenberg's films, they're very intense, very, uh, very graphic in some ways, um, but they're also about kind of high concept ideas. And so, and also, so the main uh, actor and the lead actor in the film, I guess the, the main character is uh, Andrea Riceboro, which I'd seen in several things before in the past and always thought it was a very interesting kind of person to watch an interesting performer always gives very different takes and we'll have more on that in a minute but the the premise of this film is that it's a little bit science fiction but it's also a little bit thriller and a little bit um family drama and so the thing i liked about it though is that it pulls no punches it's right there i mean you don't you don't miss anything this uh, this woman, she's a kind of a an operative, I guess you might say. You know, she she does take um, she takes these assignments to carry out like assassinations or killings under the guise of someone else, and not you know pretending to be someone else, but in someone else's body, which is where the science fiction of it all comes in. But it's really interesting to see this played out and done in a way that's not overly uh, technical, 
and yet it's not it doesn't rely on a lot of like mumbo jumbo um you just kind of have to follow it you have to go with it and once you do that once you buy into that and you see how it works you know the the film starts with kind of her previous assignment like as it kind of so it hits with a bang and uh then you see that she's actually comes out of this and is really dealing with some stuff like on a personal level that um is starting to affect her work and even you know a bit of uh family domestic uh just um dysfunction and so the thing i really liked about it though is that it takes that and it almost flips it on its head in a way and it's hard to explain without seeing the film or without really giving some things away but i'll just say that the film that you start watching and you really get into and you start to understand the character and what is going on it starts to flip i mean things start to really change and you almost start to watch a different movie by the end of it um and it does resolve itself in a way but it's just really you you cannot miss anything in this film you can't like miss some dialogue you can't miss a scene because everything's important and that's what i love about films like this that sometimes the, there are shots and there are moments in the film that you don't want to watch because they're brutal as hell but you have to understand like this is the gravity of it these are the stakes involved and ultimately it does pay off you you are kind of rewarded for sticking with it if you can stick with it so um I kind of talked around a lot of it. I don't want to give a lot of it away if you ever happen to see it or if you have seen it, um, you know what I'm talking about. But it's really uh, it's really interesting how a story like this starts really vague and uh, it's not really clear what you're watching at the beginning. And as you do, it starts to really unfold and you really understand more about the character and even the plot itself. And even, you know, there's a little bit of commentary in there. There's a little bit of commentary on technology and how we use technology and how technology is kind of infecting and, and intruding into our lives um, through corporations or just through the government or, you know, in, in all different ways. There's a little bit of that in there, which is interesting. It's really kind of relevant to a lot of things happening today. So, uh uh, that is one that uh, I would definitely give a recommendation to, but just be warned that it is a little bit, uh, it's bloody, it's graphic, um, and it's not all the way through, but it does have some very shocking, powerful moments in it. Um, but stick with it, and I think you'll find it really interesting. So, all right, that's number 10. Now let's move to uh, let's move to our next one here, which is... Um, this one was interesting because I didn't really know what to think about this. I saw this, uh, I saw like the cover art or the poster or whatever somewhere. And, you know, it's one of those things where you see a movie, you see a cover for a movie and you think, oh, I recognize the people on this. And I feel like this was probably a movie that was made before these people became famous or became known, you know, kind of known quantities or, or people that are recognizable. So anyway, I, I watched this movie called um, Hot Summer Nights. And hey, look, one thing, horrible title. I get that it's describing like kind of a, a, a setting, but horrible title. Let, let's, let's do better. On the other hand, though, the film, I thought, really had some really cool stuff in it. Um, one, it's got uh, the lead actor is Timothy Chalamet, which 
you know, this year or the last year with Dune and, and so many other higher profile projects that he's been in, um, has really made a name for himself and is, is actually, I think really someone interesting to watch. Um, you know, something about the story here with hot summer nights though, it almost seems kind of too simple and too, too basic for the kind of work that, that he's clearly shown he can do since then. Now this was released, I think in 2018. And so maybe that's, you know, maybe that's in, in a, in someone's career. That's one of those that you do just as you're getting started, you're kind of getting the ball rolling. Um, I know he's been in other things much earlier than that, but this was him as the lead actor. And so maybe that was, uh, that was part of it is you take a role like this and just do the best you can with it. And so, uh, and that's not to say the film's bad. The film, actually, I really liked it. I liked the premise of it. You know, it's, it's, uh, about a young man who is, um, you know, just kind of ambitionless, kind of, uh, has no direction. And I think it's the summer of 92, 91, that um, he goes to Cape Cod um, and, you know, for the summer, obviously, and ends up getting involved with like uh, some of the local, some of the local yokel, some of the uh, local youth there, including a drug dealer who has kind of a reputation that precedes him of being pretty violent, pretty over the top. But he actually ends up finding his way into this situation and, and they start... Um, they really start an operation of selling drugs to, you know, other kids, other families, other people who like, you know, on the surface, they're like squeaky clean, but down underneath, they're into it all. And so he's there and they're cashing in They're They're making money. And so the thing I like about it is interesting is that uh, it's got like, I, I see parts of it from other films that I enjoy. You know, there's parts of it that, you know, if you've seen Boogie Nights, there are parts of that film where, I mean, there's a scene almost right out of it where him and and this drug dealer, they go to meet like kind of a big bad. And, uh, you know, it's a tense kind of a not sure what's going to happen situation. There's like music playing in the background. And it's it's one of those things where it all feels like it's all about to go wrong. And they're in over their head, basically. And so that's. That's kind of the vibe. It reminds me of the Sister Christian scene in uh, Boogie Nights, which was one of the best scenes in the movie. So, you know, there are a few things like that. There's some really fun kind of character moments and some dialogue in it that I really like. I thought it was really, you know, pulled off well. Um, yeah, you know, there's a couple of things towards the end that kind of builds to a head in the middle of like a hurricane making landfall. And that's that's a little bit, um, I don't know. I would say that's a little bit, uh, unnecessary. I get that. It's got to have some kind of climactic, you know, momentum, uh, going to the end of the film, but, uh, it just seemed a little bit, uh, I don't know, a little bit much, but either way, I would still give it a, I would give it a recommendation. Now you got kind of an afternoon to kill. Um, if you like Timothy Chalamet, if you've never seen this, I think it's interesting. Um, and uh, so I, I would say, check it out. And that one was on. Uh, that one's on. I think it's on Showtime right now. Maybe it's on some other places. But you can you can probably catch it anywhere streaming. 
Um, I even saw it at Redbox one time, so it might even be there. Um, you know, the only thing I would say is the ending is just a little bit too ambiguous about what happens next, but that's okay. Uh, it's more about the ride than the destination. It's one of those, okay? So um, give it a shot if you feel like it. Um, let me move on to the next one here. Um, so I'm looking at number 12 now. Now, this is a film that I remember coming out in the 90s, and I wasn't really sure what to make of it. And and yet, I like everybody in it. I even like the director, the writer and director, but I just wasn't sure um, if it was really what it was cracked up to be. And that's uh, Light Sleeper, uh, directed by, written directed by Paul Schrader from 1992. It's got uh, William Defoe. Um, Willem Dafoe, not William, no, no, not William shit, Willem, and Susan Sarandon, uh, Dana Delaney's in it, and, you know, the idea is that he's a drug dealer who is, um, you know, he's got, Susan Sarandon's kind of his boss, or, or even mentor in a way, and she's kind of going straight, she's trying to get out of this business, and throughout the film, you see him kind of looking at, uh, what what he's kind of found himself in, like his lot in life now as a drug dealer. And maybe he's looking for a way to get out of it too. And and yet, you know, the, the idea that he's going to therapy, he's writing in a journal, he's trying to sort out his thoughts and his feelings about it, but he's still in the mix and he can't quite find a way out of it. Um, it's interesting premise. Uh, I think... In 1992, maybe it really played as unique and an interesting take on it. But today, I don't know. It just doesn't really, it doesn't land with any kind of impact. Um, I guess because it's been kind of done since then. It's been done in different ways and different, you know, the Sopranos being a big one. Um, you know, someone who's kind of looking to to sort out their feelings and their thoughts through therapy and, and all that and not quite get in there. Um, now nah, it's not a comparison. This isn't, you know, involving the mob or anything. Um, but light sleeper, I, I think it's a very quiet and very kind of subtle movie and it's, it's kind of a slow burn. It has a, a, a big payoff at the end, but it really takes a while to get there. And it feels like it's taken a while to get there. Um, the one thing I will say, all the performances are great. Everybody in it's great. Um, the one thing though, that really, I think just, just holds the movie back, like watching it now, because this is now 30 years later, is the music. The music is, you know, when I think about like filmmaking and, you know, uh, how to put something together and what like my ideas might be or, or how I think they would hold up and, and play for an audience even. Um, music is the one thing that I'm always kind of I'm always sketchy about because I just don't know how things will hold up. And I tell you, the music in this movie does not work for me. A lot of it is, I guess, music of the, the time and the era, like the, maybe the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, there's like some kind of blues-ish. Uh, there's even a little bit of uh, uh, jazz. You know what? Actually, way too much saxophone. Way too much. I, we got it, you know. I think who is it? Michael Kamen with uh, 
with the Lethal Weapon series. And I think it was David Sanborn was like just blowing sacks all over that thing. All like four movies. Uh, you know, we got it. We got the saxophone already. Um, it just doesn't, it doesn't hold up. It, it just, it took me out of the movie in every scene when a song came on and it kind of played through a montage or whatever, or just, you know, a loud, annoying sax playing through stuff. I, it just didn't work for me. Maybe uh, your mileage may vary, but for me, uh, I, you know, it's enough where I, it, I have to knock points off of it. I just, I, you know, I don't think I could watch the film again. So, you know, that's one. I mean, it's kind of like a Hoosiers-esque type of thing where Hoosiers on, on the level of the story and the performances is actually really, I think, really holds up. It's really good. But that synthesizer score that they use, it just like doesn't make sense because the story takes place in like the 50s or something. But the movie was made in the 80s. And so there's all these like, you know, keyboard synthesizer soundtrack. And it. it's that. Is that kind of thing. It just doesn't work. So, you know, uh, just kind of take it at your own risk and see what you think. I mean, everybody involved is, is talent and everybody, um, you know, everybody did a great job. It's just a couple of things that for me, stylistically, I guess, just don't really work. But you take it as you will. Um, that one I saw on Criterion Channel. And I mean, you may be able to find it through other streaming sources. Um and uh yeah so that's that's light sleeper all right after that now let me get to this one this is one that uh let me just say this is uh disconnect from 2013 now this is a film that i had heard about when it came out and you know i think the easy comparison for this would be something like crash yeah, Crash. The Oscar winner. Best picture, Crash. You know, that's an easy comparison. It's not the right comparison, but it's an easy one. Um, another film might be um, maybe Babel. Also. Um, yeah, there, there were several films like this, uh, maybe throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, where... I mean, you could even start going back to like Boogie Nights or Magnolia. Thanks, Paul Thomas Anderson, um, which, yeah, hey, look, they're great films. Um, you could even go through, you know, Crash, Babel. Um, I feel like there's another that I'm not thinking of. But this one is kind of in the same vein. There's three or four different threads that uh, intertwine and they overlap each other. And you're not really sure how that's going to all happen. Um, but by the end you do understand, but the big thing with this, the thing that makes this film really impressive to me is that it came out almost 10 years ago. And a lot of it is dealing with, um, it's dealing with basically our lives online, how we're using social media, how we're using, um, you know, different things like, uh, online, uh, communication, and even how those things can get infiltrated through like hacking and phishing and scams and uh, just identity theft. There's so much that maybe in 2012, 2013, maybe it was a little too fresh or a little too uh, unknown to most people. But now having kind of seen how that's become just a part of life 
like really part of life. Uh, ten years later, it's 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 almost it, it's almost scary how prescient this film is, because even down to you know aspects of like cyberbullying and uh, harassment that um, you know you don't necessarily think are something that can land in your you know, at your doorstep, but this film, I think, illustrates how it can, and maybe you don't even know it's happening. And, you know, as a parent, as a, as someone who has a family and, and tries my best to take care of those things and, and be responsible for those things, it's, it's, it's really kind of scary to think that there's so much out in the world that can like damage that or destroy that. And not even, intentionally just through you know just through pranks just through you know people being jerks and so i i really thought this was impressive and it still holds up i think you know a lot of the the things that they're talking about people getting scammed out of their money people falling for um online you know personas catfishing that kind of thing um you know Kids kind of playing pranks on each other, resulting in cyberbullying, dealing with suicide. Dealing with, there's so much heavy stuff in here, but I feel like it's played in a real, in a real unique way that none of it's really over the top. You know, that's the other thing. It is kind of a slow burn in the sense that, you know, you leapfrog through all these characters and their threads, and you're not sure that they all do connect. You start to see a little bit of you know, uh, connection between some of the characters at some points, but you're not really sure that these are all going to really amount to something. Um, but when it does start to happen, you, you really see that, um, they, they really did a pretty good job of, of working all these things together. And, but I, you know, again, going to examples like crash, which it's probably over dramatized, but it was, you know, the intent I think was there to, show that our lives are in some way all connected and whether we know it or not, or we're, whether we mean it to be or not. And so this one, I think it shows that, yeah, we are, we all are connected. And sometimes we, we are almost powerless over it. We're powerless over the technology. And that's a real, uh, that's a real heavy thing to state. That's a, that's a bold statement to make in a film like that. Um, and to the point where, you know, you see characters finding themselves like just looking at screens and dealing with, you know, text and not communicating with the people that are right in front of them. And it's the thing that I think we have all experienced now uh, from, you know, severe examples to just, you know, slight things that, you know, maybe they need to be kind of a remedied or, or, you know, change some habits or whatever. But, you know, the idea is that, you know, the idea is that this thing is, has gotten away from us. And, and this film made 10 years ago, you know, they, they pretty much predicted that, that this would happen. And so when you see families getting torn apart, when you see, uh, you know, couples dealing with their own dysfunction, um, you know, you see kids kind of abusing their power, uh, you know, the, it, it, it really, it's kind of a hard thing to look at. It's, there's a lot of hard truths in the film, 
but these things are they're real they're here and so you know it doesn't necessarily present any answers but it's hard to present answers when there's so many problems but it at least shines a light on the problem so i you know this is one that i think was probably my top pick going into this right now um you know, this this was the one that of all these I've talked about so far has really impressed me the most. And so I would say, look, give this one a watch for sure. You know, it's got a great cast in it. No, there's no like A-listers in it, which is fine because everybody that is in it does a perfect job. I mean, everybody from, you know, the the I guess the, the biggest name is Jason Bateman, who, hey, look, for me, my stock bought it a long time ago. And just kind of been holding it ever since then, always going up from Silver Spoons all the way to Ozark. I mean, he's always I've always been impressed with everything he's done. And this he's not even a big part of this film. But when he is in it, of course, just aces. But uh, other people that are in it, um, you know, Frank Grillo, um, Andrea Riceborough, who when you watch this and Possessor in the same week, you almost don't recognize this is the same person. Now, these were made some years apart, but still, it's such a range of performance, uh, really impressed. And, I mean, so other people in the cast, I mean, Paula Patton, uh, was it Alexander Skarsgård? Um, who else is in it? Even, you know, even the kid, even, uh, was it Colin Ford, who's, I've seen in other films before, and, um, He's just really got kind of a presence and kind of got a, a charm. But in this, you know, he's even kind of a dick in this film. But he comes around and you buy it. And so I think that's really that's a really powerful example of like everybody in the cast is doing their work and they're getting it. They're, they're showing what they can do. So I'm I'm down. I'm impressed. Um, so I'd recommend this for sure. You know, that is. um from 2013, that's on Amazon Prime. Go check that out. Disconnect. Now, um, let's get to our next one here. As a matter of fact, the next two. I'm going to say something about the next two. Um, you know, one of the things I have, just for me personally, is I have a little bit of a wall when it comes to foreign film. And it's not because, oh, it's from some other place. It's just because... One, I mean, not even subtitles, but it's just that uh, I know there's a layer of kind of a, a there's like a sensibility that you have to you have to make an adjustment for, and even an adjustment for um, like aesthetics and a cultural relevance. You know, if if you're watching a film that's made in another country but you're not from that country or you, you don't understand maybe that specific way of life or, or something like that, that culture. Sometimes it's hard to really grasp like what is going on or, or what the meaning should be, what you should take away from it. So these are two examples that I really thought, um, yeah. And I didn't necessarily know going in, but I had heard of these films a long time ago and I was surprised that, uh, pleasantly surprised that uh, it didn't matter. It didn't matter where you're from. If you understood what the characters were going through, if you understood the the plot and the and the situations, that's all you needed. 
And so let me get to the next one. The next one is The Great Beauty. Um, and that's directed by Paolo Sorrentino. And that was from 2013 also. Um, there's so much to say about this film. And yet I'm, tr- I'm going to try and keep it simple. Um, and in terms of, uh, you know, making it easy to get you interested to watch it. Cause that's ultimately, I, I want you to see this film and maybe, maybe it's not your thing, but one day, Put it on your list. One day you'll watch it, I'm sure. And you'll enjoy it. Um, what can I say? I mean, it's the film starts in such a broad, dynamic way where it's a it's a birthday party. It's a celebration of a man who's turning 65. But this doesn't look like a 65 year old's birthday party. I mean, it's like a rooftop, just a rooftop rave almost. Uh, and I mean, it's it's wild. There's a lot of energy there's a lot of passion involved and and it's it's one of those that um you know you almost think like something's not right here something's off and when you start to see this man who is uh turning 65 but he's not living the life of a 65 year old and when you understand why that is as the film plays out you know you realize that He's just been living, he's kind of been coasting on, you know, some early success in his life. He's kind of found his way into society, into high society. You know, he's, uh, you know, considered an intellectual and a, a you know, kind of a, uh, a, he's a, he's a writer and, you know, um, See, this is how irrelevant that lifestyle is to me. I can't. Even, I don't even know how to say it. But the point is that this is a man who's kind of reached such an elevated status that he almost defies age. You know, that he can make himself. He can make a life for himself. That is something that most of us or most people, let's say, they don't understand or they don't. Um, Maybe they don't even have an ambition for, which is fine. But the movie does a great job of illustrating how you can let that get, you can let that go to your head. You can let it get away from you and make you into something that is almost not real. And you know that through a series of discoveries and relationships in that he goes through in the film. You see that he's turned 65. He's kind of just, you know, riding on a cloud and it, as he has been for most of his life. And yet because of age and because of time, just in general, things are changing around him. You know, he's losing friends. People in his life have either die or they, you know, they leave or they move, they move on. And, it's funny. It's like, you know, if you almost think like if someone's going through like a midlife crisis, you know, which happens way before 65, but where they start to see kind of the other side of life, you know, they, you, you stop reaching the point where you're ascending and you start to see like you're, you know, over the hill, right? You're going over that hill. So, but this is a man who somehow never saw that. He's always been on the rise, even to the age of 65. And yet now, 
at this point, because of things that happen in the, in, in the story, the course of the story, he starts to reflect on that and he starts to really think something's wrong. And so that's, uh, it's played with, put it this way, it's played with such a quiet kind of intensity and, you know, I got to give it to the, the main actor as uh, Tony Servillo, um, which I hope I'm pronouncing it right. But, you know, the, the idea is that the way I see it, he he plays it with such a kind of a, uh, he's like on a breeze through the whole film. But then there are moments where you see kind of the cracks in, in him. And you see the moments where he he pauses and he starts to, you know, is it, like you can see the you see the shell, you see the person, the personality. But he does such a great job of giving you just tiny glimpses of the human, the the man inside, who has fought this, has really kind of kept this facade up and and kept this act up for all these years as part of life, not through any kind of you know ill will or, 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 you know, intention to deceive anybody. It's just, that's his personality. The problem is everything catches up with you. And so, you know, in a way it's kind of a story about life catching up with this man, but it's also about what is life? Like, what is this life? I just go and party and just hang out with my high society snob friends. And, you know, we cut everybody down. We cut each other down. And then we go back and party again and start all over again. What is this life? What is it? And that's the question that kind of keeps coming up over and over for him throughout the film. And so that's where, uh, you know, he starts to make some changes and starts to recognize and acknowledge that there's more to life than this fantasy that he's made for himself or that he just sees there's a, there's a reality there and he's kind of always dismissed it or pushed it aside or cut it down. And yet he's found like a real, he's found a a way to hang on to it now through, through the plot of the, through the course of the story, he finds ways to hang on to this, reality and become a man. And so, ah, man, I just look aside from all that, you know, that's kind of high level existential, you know, thematic stuff. But even aside from that, it's just a beautiful film to watch. I mean, the cinematography, the, the locations, the wardrobe, like it's just like immaculate. I mean, it looks amazing. And, you know, there's so much about Italy that's that at least is shown here, you know, whether it's I think a lot of the story takes place in Rome. And, you know, you see so much of that part of the world in this film. And it's not all pristine, of course, but it's presented in such a way that it feels it's there. It's, you feel the texture, you feel the energy, you 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 feel the air there. And, yeah, I don't know. It's something about, like, the the camera. There's a lot of camera movement in it. It's not very static and flat. It's it's very dynamic. It's got energy to it. 
And yet it's also, you know, the light, the shadow, the, the camera work is, is amazing. The colors, it's just a, it's a beautiful film just to watch. Just, if you don't want to watch it for the plot, just watch it. But either way, I'd recommend it for sure. That's The Great Beauty of 2013. Check that out. It's on Criterion Channel. There's even a whole Criterion edition of it. Um, so, and I think it's even on HBO Max right now. So that might be a place to uh, to take a look at that and uh, give it a shot. I think you'll like it. And um, so on, the, on that note, you know, the last one that I'll talk about is um, what I just watched. And that is uh, from... Let me see. What year was that from? Let me look at this. 1990. Wow. So, look, everything I just said about The Great Beauty, let's back up and let me let me say something about this one. This is a film called Close Up, and it's from uh, the director, Ari... Uh, let me get it right. I've, I've said his name so many times, I can't believe I screwed it up. It's Abbas Karastami. And I had heard about this film a long time ago, never kind of got around to watching it. One, because I didn't really understand what, what it was about. I had heard like the, the premise, you read kind of the, like the log line, the description. Like I, I don't really, I don't, I don't know if I'm sure I understand what that means, but I just said, you know what? I'm just going to watch it. I'm just going to put it on, just watch it. And what was so interesting to me is that, it starts it starts out in a way that I wasn't ready for, and it ends in a way that I definitely didn't expect. You know, it starts as a scripted film where it's, you know, a, a reporter, he's going to talk to a man, and he's riding with some police officers and, and in a taxi. And they're going to see this man because supposedly this man has been... Uh, impersonating or pretending to be a famous filmmaker. And by the way, so this is another foreign film. This is an Iranian film. Um, and so the setting and the, the culture there, it, it's on screen. It's, it's there. You clearly are in somewhere else and dealing with a, a different type of lifestyle. But it's not all that different from anything you'd recognize. And it becomes really clear by the end that this is relevant to anybody who loves art, who loves film, who has a passion for those things. And so, again, so this is a, it starts out very simple. Like someone is investigating a man who's pretending to be a famous filmmaker. And I, Okay, is is this a comedy? Is this like kind of a thriller? What what are we really talking about here? Well, once they arrest this man, they do find him, they arrest him, and this is all like in the first, I don't know, 15 minutes or so. It becomes a documentary. Like the man that they arrest and the family that he was, you know, the the home that he was at where they arrested him. They are the real people. It's the real guy. It's the real family. You start to see he is charged with uh, these, uh, he's charged with fraud and attempted fraud. 
Um, not for just impersonating someone, but for supposedly trying to possibly scam them out of money or even, you know, steal from them. So he's arrested. Um, the director of the film, Abbas Karastami, goes to talk to him and actually, you know, gets his case kind of rearranged, gets, you know, is allowed to bring cameras into the courtroom. And so... <laughs> What I thought was going to be a, a film about like a real, you know, um, I knew it was based on a real story, but I thought it was kind of a reenacted, scripted thing with actors. It turns into a documentary with the real people and they do flashbacks. In the courtroom, they ask, how did you first meet this family? They ask this guy. He starts to tell, well, I was on the bus. They flash back to him, actually him, on the bus, meeting the old lady, the, the mother of the family, and their conversation and how he just almost effortlessly went into impersonating this filmmaker. And so if you can believe that, I just, it threw me for such a loop. And I, I you know, I wasn't really sure. I was like, oh, wait, I'm just watching a documentary now. But the way they intertwined this real footage and the reenacted, restaged things with all the real people, because, you know, part of it is this family's present charges against this man because they believe he was trying to, you know, steal from them or, or defraud or, or, you know, basically take advantage of them and take advantage of their, their goodwill and their trust. And so you would think there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of spite there, but somehow that all, you know, sorted itself out in a way that they were able to all cooperate and reenact some of this stuff for the film. I, that was already just amazing to me on that level. Cause I'm like, wait, wait, Oh, okay. This is really amazing. Now, when you follow the actual case in the film, where they're attempting to understand why did he do this? Why did this man try to impersonate a filmmaker? And his explanation, his humble, um, almost pitiful explanation for why, it's uh, it's eye-opening. And, and it's tragic in a way, but... You know, his reasoning is that he loves film and he loves art and creating so much that when this woman or when he had the opportunity to act as a filmmaker for this woman and she believed him and was, you know, eventually, you know, came to their house, this family's house and, and kind of started to, you know, befriend them and, and get, gain their trust, the the respect and the admiration and the power that he felt was so, like, intoxicating that he he almost couldn't help himself. He was compelled to kind of keep the lie going to the point where he, he was trying to see if they could help him film a project as the filmmaker and, uh, you know, talk to them about, you know, shooting locations and how, you know, they could do it in their home and like, oh, the family, they would be in the film and you know, all these ideas. And, you know, the fact that it just came out of 
his love for the, the art form um, was really uh, it was it was amazing to see because it pushed a person so far the the kind of obsession you know pushed someone to basically um, basically corrupt themselves and. You know, I, I think that's a, that's probably a more powerful thing than I was ever expecting from a film like this. It's it's the the corrupting power of of obsession. You know, you can love a thing, you can be into a thing so much that it can make you do things you wouldn't want to do or wouldn't normally do or wouldn't ever do. And yet he did them. Now, you know, he he explains in the film that he didn't do it with the intention of ever like like he was eventually going to uh you know reveal that this was all kind of a you know uh, this was not real. But um I don't know, there was something about it that because look, in the end it was down to the judge asking the family if they would just Hey, just drop the charges. The guy explained, he's just he's just a super fan. He just really loves film. He thought that, you know, he he would be able to kind of fool some people and maybe you know get a few perks out of it and be on his way eventually. And so, hey, just consider dropping the charges. The guy apologized. He seems very uh, embarrassed and and humbled by the whole thing. And they do, and they drop the charges. And they explain in their way that it's through forgiveness. They were able to forgive someone for potentially doing something to them. I mean, he lied to them, he misled them, but you know, he didn't commit any grave acts or you know serious crimes against them. But still, you know, the the idea that a man's moral compass has all been you know thrown out of whack by his own kind of personal, you know, uh, obsession, I think, um, you know, their way of looking at it as kind of a straight and narrow kind of buttoned up family was, this is not a good thing to happen. And we can forgive him if he can start to do right, which, uh, wow. I mean, that's, it's so simple and yet it's so necessary you know, it's it's one of those things that, uh, you know, if you would have told me that's what the, that's what this film was about, I might have thought how. But watching it and seeing it play out and knowing that these are the real people involved playing themselves in this film. You know, it, it that's where it goes. It, it shows that, yeah, they really did forgive him. You know, they all kind of came to came back to good terms to be able to cooperate and make what ended up being the final film. And so I, I think if, if you have a, a love for film, if you have a, a, a love for art and for creating things, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, like this man, he, he wanted to be a director, but in the, in the end, maybe he was an actor because he performed for these people, kept this whole ruse going. 
And so, you know, his, his way of looking at it was, I just love this thing so much. Even though I'm poor, I'm not this director, but people see me differently. They, they treat me differently and I feel better about myself. Like, that's a big thing. That's a, that's a big thing that a lot of people, you know, it can go to their head. People who are really in the business or really successful or whatever, that, uh, that can all kind of get away from you in such a bad way. And so that's why I say, to me, the film is really about the, the, the corrupting power of, of one's obsession and how you have to sometimes be able to bring yourself back from that or find your way back. So I just, wow. I mean, this one was really eye-opening for me on a few different levels, but one of them being that uh, a film about something that seems really kind of like a petty crime is really rooted in something meaningful and, and, and deep, really. So, um, again, that's close up. That's from 1990. That's Abbas Kurostami. And I hope I'm saying his name right. Feel like I might be, feel like I might not be, but either way, I would definitely recommend you check that out. And I think that is only available on Criterion channel, but if you find it somewhere else or if you're able to stream it or something, check it out. So anyway, all right. So look, that was what? 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15? Are we at 15 now? We're at 15. All right. The streak is still going. <laughs> so look, all right. I'm going to keep this going. We're going to do another episode in a week and uh, we'll see what happens then. I've got a few ideas of how I'm going to make this thing a little more interesting other than just five random movies. But we're going to keep it going until I figure out like um, how we can do some cool stuff with it. But in the meantime, hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for watching if you're watching and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you.